Okay, one announcement. We will have our communion service this Sunday, but we're not going to have the fellowship dinner afterwards. So we figured that we parted enough for one month. <laughs> we're about parted out. I know the people, the people who are doing all the preparations and all would uh, like the break. So we will have communion, but not the fellowship dinner. Okay, uh, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion by having a few moments of silent prayer. I forgot to tell you the date. The date is December the 29th. This is our last Bible class of 2011. Next time we meet, it will be next year. So, now let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion, a moment of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it changes not, nor do you. We thank you that we can always depend upon your faithfulness your power, your love. We pray that you will help us to open our hearts to the message. That is, that we will have an open mind and concentrate on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, so that we will be prepared to face the challenges that will surely be coming, that we will be on the ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, that we will ask the questions, and direct these people who are lost to your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> we are um, finished with James chapter 2. So I want you to please uh, turn to James chapter 2. One thing that I, I've learned something since we were here Tuesday night in a few of my theological books that I thought was worth mentioning before we go to our next subject matter and getting the gospel right. I said that it's important for you to be able to substantiate the fact that James is not talking to unbelievers. This, this letter was written to believers and he's not trying to give instructions on how to be saved eternally. These people are already eternally saved. And I found a few more scriptures that would substantiate that. And I went right through them when I went read through James. But uh, if you pause and think for a moment, there are some more verses that would substantiate the fact that he's talking to believers. I think in <clears throat> you might find a place somewhere in a blank spot around James. I'm going to give you about four or five verses that have to do with the people that James were, was writing to were believers. The first scripture is found in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. And you might, note, you might make some kind of notation, a symbol or maybe a B for a believer or something at each one of these verses. So if you're ever discussing this and you see that you can just turn right to them 
Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Wouldn't that be a strange thing to say to an unbeliever? I mean, why in the world would a unbeliever, an unbeliever, count it all joy when he experiences various trials? That wouldn't even communicate, would it? And then knowing that the testing of your faith, evidently they have faith or it wouldn't be tested, produces endurance. This would be totally inappropriate and not concerning an unbeliever. Then if you drop down to verse 9 in chapter 1. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. That does not make sense to an unbeliever. An unbeliever does not glory in humble circumstances. They are too busy clawing and scraping to get to the top. Of course, we recognize what this is saying. If you have humble circumstances, it doesn't matter whether you're driving a Lexus or a Chevy or a Fiat or a bicycle. Not much difference between those last two. Uh, it doesn't matter because of because we have a high position. Where is our high position? In Christ. So this too would not be appropriate for an unbeliever. And you then go to chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. What does that suggest? That they have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They just aren't not to do it in a attitude of personal favoritism. So that also would suggest that this is referring to believers and not unbelievers. Then we are I think I already mentioned to you James chapter four verse five. Or do you or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Well, unbelievers simply don't have the spirit dwelling in them that comes from God, made to dwell in us. Certainly that would be referring to a believer. Then in chapter 5, Verse 19. <clears throat> and did you notice nearly every one of these start with my brethren? That should be enough in itself. But My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from, his, from the error of his way will save his soul from death. What does it mean there, by the way, when it says save his soul from death? Is that saying he's going to keep him from going to hell? No. Remember I said every time it talks about saving the soul, it's referring to saving the life, physical life. Save the soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So 
this must be referring to believers because how can an unbeliever stray from something he never believed? Or how can you turn an unbeliever back to something he had never believed? Wouldn't make sense, would it? So all of these are scriptures that I believe substantiate the fact that he is writing to believers the whole time. It's about believers. We read all of chapter 1 and went into chapter 2 all the way up before verse 13 substantiate the fact that it's not has, doesn't have anything to do with eternal salvation. And then we drop all the way down to the last two verses of the epistle and he's still talking about experiential, saving the soul, saving the life. If any, he says, my brethren, if any, this would be believers among you, strays from the truth. Well, what does that tell you? Believers stray from the truth all the time, don't they? And one turns him back. So unbelievers don't turn back to something that they never accepted to begin with. And they don't stray from something that they've never believed. So I just thought I would throw that in before we press on so that we would have more ammunition at the ready whenever we go into this part of Scripture. Now, we're out of James. At least for now. Yes, sir. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. It's talking about a premature uh, physical death. That's what the whole warning is in James chapter 2. He's warning them. Not that they have any... Of course he's not saying that they're in danger of losing their eternal life. It's impossible to lose that, but they are in danger of a premature death, which we would just simply call the sin unto death. Correct. Okay, now this is our next subject matter. Faith alone. And I've got a sneaky suspicion this might be a lot of information here. Probably the biggest area of disagreement concerning the gospel is whether one is saved by faith alone or by faith plus something else. No issue is more important than this because where one will spend eternity depends on which side of the issue one supports. This is the bedrock fundamental belief of Christianity, and that is orthodox Christianity. This is what separates everything. We don't retreat from this, not one little bit. And we're going to see how many people would challenge this, that eternal life is not by faith alone, but that it requires something else. So, the first verse we're going to look at is John chapter 5, verse 24. We have to start somewhere, so this verse is as good as any. John chapter 5, verse 24. This is the Lord speaking, even though it's not in red here. When it says, truly, truly, this is like the Lord saying, now hear this, I, I, I want to get your attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word...
Faith cometh by hearing. Remember that? Hearing from the Word. This is, He who hears my Word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. This is a verse we don't go to very often, but I think we ought to because it really substantiates faith alone. Our Lord's words are very clear. The way to obtain eternal life is through faith in Him alone. Notice that one passes from spiritual death to spiritual life the moment he believes the gospel. Look at that verse. And believes Him who sent me, who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. When? Well, the moment that they believe. From that point, it is impossible for the believer to come under eternal judgment, period. Water baptism, confirmation, repentance of sins, inviting Christ into your heart, Acknowledging Jesus as Lord, raising a hand, walking an aisle, joining a church, turning your life over to Him, or any other work is never added as a requirement by our Lord in order to receive the gift of eternal life. None of those things are mentioned here. Did you notice that? Yes. Repent. Yeah, well, they... see. Uh, Repent is a, is a funny thing. When people say repent, they usually think of the, what the Greek word for the way they see it is metamelomai, thinking it's regret, it's remorseful, it's an emotional thing. And when people talk about repenting of their sins, the, the, there are those who say that's a necessary requirement to be saved. And they, they say repentance of sins uh, change your mind about sins? Well, let me tell you something. You all know this as well as I do. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, your, maybe your desire not to sin might change some, but your attitude towards sin remains the same because we still sin after we are believers in Jesus Christ. And the reason we sin is because we like to sin. It is our nature and you can say that you repent of your sins, change your mind. Usually they think it means to feel sorry for your sin. But repentance has nothing to do with it because why? It's not here. You don't see anything in, in, in here, do you? One thing alone, believe. And at that time, you pass out of death into life and you shall never come into judgment, period. Pretty powerful, right? The guarantee of our Lord makes it relevant to the very moment of faith. This is a promise from our very Lord. Look at that. He who hears, believes, has. On the authority of Jesus, the believer can know he has eternal life at the very moment he believes in Him. And the same thing holds true for other verses as well. Isn't this important? I mean... If you know the English language, you can understand that he is saying these things, not coming into, under judgment,
not coming under judgment, but has passed out of death into life. What does that mean? Born again, does it not? You're born again. You're no longer spiritually dead. Now you're, you, you have spiritual life. And notice that is the past tense. It's referring back to that point where you believe. Now here's a few more verses that are saying essentially that same thing. John 3.16, I usually don't include this because it's pretty well understood by most, but for God so loved the world that He gave His only or uniquely born Son that whosoever... You know, you, can't, you cannot put restraints or constraints on whosoever. Some would translate those who believe in Him. But those as if it's a category, but that does not really wash when you're looking at whoever. Not a certain category or anything. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son will eventually get eternal life if he has enough works. How can somebody read this and get that? He that believeth on the Son, what? Has eternal life. When? When he believes. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 6.47 Again, this is Christ speaking. Truly, truly, again, now hear this, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Where are the works in here? No mention of works. Okay. If one is saved the moment he believes the gospel, and he is, then no works are required at all to be saved. But some say, while it is true no works are needed to secure salvation, they are needed to maintain salvation or it can be lost. Hmm. Well... We've got to look at that one, don't we? Get ready for that one. You prove there's no works here, nowhere, you're saved. And there will be some people say, yeah, that's true. But, you know, you don't stay saved. You can fall out of grace. You can fall away from this. You've got to maintain it. Well, let's look at that. <clears throat> First of all, if such were true then our Lord and the Apostle John misled people when they said that believing in the Son would secure eternal life from them, wouldn't he? He's not, he's not saying anything about works, maintenance, or anything else. So that would be a misleading statement. Those who tack on other requirements to faith in Christ alone for salvation make what Christ and John said about uh, uh, what, what they said sound incomplete and therefore misleading. So if they didn't say it and it's required, then we have a problem. You know what some people will do? Well, it's not said here. Well, where is it found? Uh, I believe it's in James chapter 2. Huh? Isn't that right? That's about the only place they can go that they know to go. And when they say that, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Let's go there and see what that has to say. Let's see if Paul and James are in harmony. Here's a quote from Getting the Gospel Wrong by J.B. Hickson on page 99. One cannot be said to have expressed saving faith if, while expressing faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, he simultaneously has as the object of his faith additional competing interests. 
That is, if one, if one believes that eternal life is gained by trusting Christ and doing good works, or by trusting Christ and being baptized, etc., or if one expressly believes that faith in Christ is, then, uh, is just one valid pathway among many to eternal life, then his faith is not in the proper a- uh, object and thus is not saving faith. This is where some people start to balk. When you say that you, you believe in Jesus Christ, a lot of people think, enough said. That's all I need to know. Evidently, you're a brother. But you have to scratch a little deeper, remember? Just by asking one more question. Is that all you have to do? Because at salvation, the object of faith is everything. It's not the faith that you have. It's not its strength or its quantity or anything. It's the object of faith. And if when you hear the gospel and someone is telling you, oh, yes, Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died for your sins. If you believe in him, you can be saved. That is as long as you're baptized. That is as long as you're confirmed. That is as long as you go to Mass. As long as you are member of this church as long as you continue to be obedient and on and on and on then the object is not solely on the provider of faith you've entered in something that is that doesn't belong there and that cancels out faith well actually what it does is god only gives eternal life as a gift and when you say yes i believe in christ but i also have to be baptized to do all these other things then you've made it wages that are due, and God does not give it that way. And if you add anything to that faith, it cannot be given to you as a gift. And if you add something to it, you have the wrong object, and you are not saved, period. A lot of people have a hard time with that. But we're going to see that that is the case in big time, right? About pretty soon here. The thief on the cross was saved by believing in Christ, period. Nothing else. He wasn't able to get baptized, join a church, or do any good works. He didn't repent of his sins. He didn't turn his life over to Christ. The apostle Paul would also be guilty of misleading people concerning the gospel when the Philippian jailer asked, What must I do to be saved? Paul mentioned nothing but what? Simple belief. Now, this is a crunch situation. The Philippian jailer was about, he was about to commit Harry Carey. He thought, well, I might as well kill myself because if the Romans, if his authorities came and the prisoners had all escaped, he would surely die and it probably wouldn't be too pleasant. And what did Paul say? And they said, Paul and those with him said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your household. Where's the baptism? Where's the works? Where's the, all the other? Wouldn't that be misleading to him? Don't you think that this Philippian jailer figured, well, I must, all I must need to do to be saved is what? Believe in Jesus Christ. In desperation, the Philippian jailer cried, What must I do to be saved? Paul's reply was simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The great apostle said nothing about baptism or sacraments, candles, incense, church attendance, or even uh, helpful, nothing that's helpful for salvation. 
From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible makes it clear that there is nothing a sinner can do, much less must do, to pay the infinite penalty required by God's justice. One can and need only believe in Christ who paid the penalty in full. It is finished, John 19.30. I hope you all remember that about this. By the way, this is from the Berean called Dave Hunt. It was... Uh, What would that be? June? June of 04? What did Christ mean when he said it is finished, by the way? Can't you pull that on someone that says, well, you have to continue maintaining and all? You've got to maintain your with, with works? Don't tell them what it says. Ask them what it means. When Right before Christ died, he cried out, it is finished. What was he talking about? And see what they might say. Further quote from this same Berean call. To attempt to do anything for one's salvation beyond believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is to deny that Christ paid the full penalty for sin on the cross and to reject God's offer on that basis of forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of His grace. Clearly we can be saved only by faith in Christ. To deny that is to essentially say that everything that Paul and, and Christ said and John and others were misleading because they said nothing about it. I don't see anything in the Bible about that at a later time. They came to the Philippian jailer and said, Oh yeah, you know, now you need to know the deeper things about the gospel and you weren't baptized, so you must be baptized. You must join our church and by the way, you better clean up your act because you could lose it. Let me tell you, if anything other than faith alone was required for eternal salvation, then they couldn't call it good news, could they? They'd have to call it, well, I wouldn't even call it good at all. If I can do anything to lose it, I can guarantee you I'm going to find a way. Yes, Art. Well, I don't think they would be doing that yet. The Catholic Church hadn't established that doctrine yet at that point. But, you know, if somebody says pray their friends out of purgatory, what, let me ask all y'all, what would you do if somebody was making a point about getting their friends out of purgatory? What is the first thing you would do? Okay. Don't tell them, oh, there's no purgatory. No. Where did you get that idea? Where is that found? What does it mean? Where is purgatory? How long has it lasted? I mean, you can ask them tons of questions. Yeah, well, it's a moneymaker for sure. If salvation can be lost, if one does not work to maintain it, then eternal life is not eternal. You hear that? If salvation can be lost, if one does not work to maintain it, if you can get it, then lose because you don't maintain it, then eternal life is not eternal, is it? How could it be? How could it be if it can be lost? How can eternal life be eternal if it is lost? It, it would have to be called temporary life, not eternal life, right? 
if you can lose it? Does it sound reasonable that God would pay the infinite price of becoming a man and going to the cross to pay for our sins and then expect us to maintain that salvation by our works? Now, here are two important questions. I want you to listen to these closely. If it is impossible for us to be good enough to obtain salvation, that is, to obtain salvation, how can we be good enough to maintain salvation? Wouldn't that be a good question? For those who say, oh, well, yes, you, Christ took, the, took care of the job up unto the cross, and when you believe in Him, then you're saved up to that point. But after that, you have to maintain it, brother. You have to walk the straight and narrow because you can lose it. Well, why not ask Him, if I can't be good enough to obtain salvation, how can I be good enough to maintain it? Huh? I believe they would squirm. What, what can you say? They'll think of something. Paul was so bold as to say that if one could not be good enough to secure salvation by works like keeping the law, which is impossible, it's impossible to, do the way, uh, to keep the law and be saved, then Christ went to the cross for nothing. He says that. Look at this verse, Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. What he's saying, if you could be good enough to obtain salvation or maintain salvation, then Christ made a wasted trip. Here's a quote from, what is see, this is from the Journal of Grace Evangelical Society, volume 12, uh, page 71. This is what it says. Ask any Roman Catholic, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he will answer what? Of course, yes. Is this man therefore saved? The real question is, where is your hope? Are you depending upon Christ and what he has done at Calvary alone? Or is your hope in penance, perform masses, baptism, so forth? This is not faith in Christ and His work. This faith is in your own works. Faithfulness to the church and therefore cannot save. Oh, boy, I tell you, I've had people, oh, yeah, but you know, I know some Catholics and they're, uh, I'm sure they're saved. I said, how do you know they're saved? Oh, because they say they believe in Christ. And I said, well, every one of them does. I said, how do you know they're saved? I said, are they still going to the Catholic Church? Well, yeah. Do they still do the Mass? Yeah. Do they still go to confession? Yeah. Well, what makes you think they're saved? Well, because they say they go right back to belief in Christ. Where are they putting their faith? The way to substantiate uh, what a Catholic, where he is spiritually, is to ask them, if you didn't go to Mass, if you weren't a member of the Catholic Church, if you didn't do penance, if you didn't go to confession, and you didn't say prayers to Mary, and you didn't do count your beads and do all the things that they do, if you didn't do anything other than simply believe in Jesus Christ, would you obtain eternal life or not? Now, you ask them that, and then you're going to get a better take on it. But all these people say, yeah, but they're so dedicated and they're nice people and blah, 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 blah. 
hell is going to be full of very nice people. People nicer than me. Probably nicer than you. That's what hell is going to be full of because they bought the lie. The gospel is good news. It is not a new set of obligations or duties to be performed, new strivings, more agonizing, but rather an announcement of what has been done for us. We do not present claims of the gospel. We present a wonderful free offer by God himself to the sinner who believes, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and not imputing or crediting their trespasses unto them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and that might be very well our next memory verse. What good is it to, for somebody to say, i got good news for you. What is it? You can, you, can, you, can, you can believe in Christ. You can ask Christ into your heart. Great. What does that mean? Well, it means you're saved. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean when I believe in Christ, I'm saved? Well, you know, you have to be poor. You have to die in the church. You have to be a good person. And oh, don't, don't get divorced. What is that? That's not good news. It's just another whole new set of rules, isn't it? That's not what good news is. You all know these, but I'm, I've get, given these two to make a point. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And what you see in, in all capital letters here, the gift of God. Don't let that slip. It's a gift. Romans 6:23, For the wages of sin is death, but the what? The free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, or through Jesus our Lord. Clearly the Bible says that salvation's eternal life is the gift of God. It is a gift of God. Y'all know those verses, surely. What is the definition of a gift? It's a noun. Something voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation, meaning payment. This came from Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, 10th edition. Something voluntarily transferred from one person to another without what compensation, payment. What is that? It means without works. Because if you're going to get compensation... If you're going to get payment, it comes on the basis of what? Work. Something that you have done. <clears throat> By definition, a gift is something freely accepted without any payment due. If any work is required to receive something, then how can a gift be considered anything but payment or compensation? What does an employee receive at the end of the week for the work he has done? A paycheck or a gift? What would you do? You know, they used to go, uh, at least on construction jobs, uh, they would go and they would have a, they, didn't do, they don't do this anymore, but they used to pay out cash. They don't do that anymore because they would pay, pay out so much cash and that goes to you and then this pile over here goes to the government. The person sitting there scratching their head. Hmm. So now they do it in a check. But what would you do, any of us, when we would get our 
remuneration at the end of a period where we're going to get paid. And your, your employer would say, here, here's a gift for you. What would you think? What? A gift? Come again? Excuse me? Gift? Wouldn't that be your attitude? What would happen if a young boy received a new bicycle for his birthday from his parents and they said, Happy birthday, son. Now, here's the bill you owe us, $89.75. What would that child do? Of course, the parents would never do that because they freely gave the bicycle as a gift and nothing is expected in return. I mean, now we're talking about gifts. I mean, there was a lot of gift giving during Christmas time, wasn't there? Well, if they were not gifts, we would need an accountant present to be able to decipher who owes who what and how much and when is it going to be paid. I mean, we know the difference between something that is owed and a gift, do we not? So when these scriptures are calling eternal life, salvation, a gift from God, surely we understand that that means that there's no payment, no labor, no work, necessary. This is easy to understand, so why do many people think work is necessary for salvation when the Bible calls it a gift? Paul puts it this way. This is in Romans 11:6. But if it is by grace, if salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it's by works, it's not by grace. By the way, remember the simplest definition of grace? Getting something you don't deserve. Grace is free. No strings attached. So Paul is saying, if salvation is by grace, and I'm sure that's a first-class condition, and it is, it is no longer on the basis of works. Never was, really. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Romans 4, 4 through 6. He's, he's addressing the same issue. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor or as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Doesn't that pretty well explain it? In other words, anybody that would add anything to faith alone would be works and it would no longer be given by God on the basis of grace. It would be given on the basis of what He owes you. And God doesn't owe us squat. It's all from His love and His grace. And He makes it very clear. And for someone to say that you have to have works added to this gracious, most astounding gift that God gives, God has given Himself to us. And people say, oh, well, yeah, you know, I know you give it to me, but what really makes it a value, what really makes it effective, what really makes it count is I've got to be dunked in water. Then it, then it, then it has value. But not only does, is that absurd, what it does is take God's grace 
and turn it into something that He owes us, that is due us. Can you see how blasphemous that is? Yes, Cindy, what? Favor? I don't have much. Do you have your Librotics up? It's probably, is it uh, Christus? Look up under favor. I know some translation calls it grace. And grace is... It's uh, uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Yeah. I know it. Well, grace and faith, you're talking about two English words that are essentially synonyms. She wants the Greek word. What is it, Vadim? Yeah. Is it ellipsized? Charis. Yeah, charis. That's the Greek word for grace. I was trying to call it Christos. That's Christ. It's charis. Yes. So the Greek word there can be translated evidently favor. Usually it's translated grace. Charis. Yeah. Okay. Um, so y'all are getting the point here. Don't lose this when somebody says that they think that you have to be good, you have to maintain it and all this. Is that God only gives it as a grace gift, and it's a gift that would cancel out any work whatsoever. Otherwise, the English language just really doesn't mean anything, does it? And the next time you go to get payment from somebody for something that you've done, they said, here, here's your gift. Then don't say anything about it. You must say, okay, well, that must be right. If we have to work for our salvation, then I guess that is a gift, which is nonsense. Yes. March to the front. Yeah. And I said, I just don't want to go to the front. And the preacher said, if you're not willing to acknowledge God before man, he will not acknowledge you. Now, to me, that was bullying. Yeah. I, it scared me, and it kind of took the wind out of my sails. That's Romans 10, 9, and 10, and it's a complete distortion. That's what it, 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 I know it, now, but I didn't then. Yeah. <laughs> so I marched to the front, dragging, See, dragging my kids with me. <laughs> That is a work. Anything that you must do, I don't care what it is. Even if you, they say you must raise your hand. Right. And it's the distortion of Scripture. Scripture says, He who, um, Romans 10, 9, and 10, yeah. And I, I, I would like to just peel off here and go to that, but I better keep going what I am right now. They make people feel guilty. That's why you never, ever have seen me ask anybody to raise their hand, walk an aisle or anything, because it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have anything to do with it. 
And for them, for anyone to say, God will not acknowledge you before, uh, I mean, uh, if you don't acknowledge God before man, he will, you will, Christ will not acknowledge you before God is out of clear blue sky. Is Scripturally, it's not there. It's just a bully. Something added, jumping through hoops in order to be saved. And, um, you, of course, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, it depends. If he had given the gospel clearly that you understood that it's not by works, Well, that didn't count, though, because you didn't raise your hand or walk an aisle, Sam. <laughs> and if you have to acknowledge it to somebody and you got it from reading and you were by yourself, well, you're still going to hell. <laughs> you know, when you start looking at all these added things that they say you have to do doesn't even make sense just you know if you don't acknowledge well the ch- the thief on the cross didn't you know you have all these people what if you're moot you're you're you're, you're you can't speak that, that would have been a quick good question one what would he have said you have to use sign language well if they don't understand it you're still going to hell so you're just oh it's devastating it's devastating, and then and then it takes the focus off of God's grace, and that's what that's what where the whole focus should be. But what it does is allow them to brag numbers how many people walk the aisle, see, and to substantiate something that shouldn't have been done to begin with. It's, and, and you don't even ha- you don't have to speak. I, if I I could go into Romans chapter ten, verse nine and ten, he was telling the Jews that what they have been saying, which was the Shema, Israel, you know, the, the, what they were saying when they went to worship, it was, a, it was rote. It was by a ritual that they said. It, it didn't mean anything to them. And yet he's saying, it's right there in your mouth. It's right there at you, but you're not believing it. It doesn't mean anything to you, see. And even when he says that, uh, if you will confess with your mouth that the Lord, uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead then you shall be saved it's, it's the believing that does it you know it's the believing and when he says about acknowledging saying that with your heart he's talking to believers anyway but I like I said I don't want to go there Pete did you want to say something yeah you need it the prove that somebody can be in a comatose uh, situation and you can go in and make the issue clear and they're there and they're helpless is never going to do another good work in most cases mm-hmm. but in many cases they hear every word you said and I had that experience with my own daddy and teaching him First John 1 9 to get back in fellowship because I knew him and he had confessed Christ in the latter part of his life we didn't know he was even saved and by explaining to him the First John recovery procedure, First John one nine, he heard it all mm-hmm. because he recovered 
And he went and told a preacher every word I said. <clears throat> it sounded like it had come right from me. It wasn't altered like Pastor. And you had no indication that he was even here. He couldn't even me. squeeze my hand. Yeah. But I, I recognized he was a believer out of fellowship, and I told him, he, I'm not even going to pray for you to get up. If you want to, I'll tell you how to get back in fellowship. But if you're going to live the same kind of life you lived in the past, then I'm not going to pray for you to get up. If you want it, you, you confess it, and then you ask for it. And he, that, that all came out to the preacher later on. He, he heard every word of it. So that's amazing. To, so it don't, it's not futile when somebody's laying there in a subconscious state or comatose state to speak to them. When you're looking at Romans 10, 9, and 10, and what the scripture that he was referring to, Barbara, uh, verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, with, which would be uh, not be uh, ashamed. Or it, what it actually means is whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But they re they see it as whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. Does somebody have a King James? How's the King James Bible go? It will not be embarrassed or something. That's Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Who's got a King James? Anybody? We don't have one King James in the house? You, you got it, Vidal? Yeah, read, read Romans 10, 11. I mean, no, excuse me, 9, 11. No, 10, 10, 10, 11. Go ahead. Yeah. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Well, it does, that's not even a good translation because it says in my New American Standard, which is closer to the original, says... For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It means to be put to shame. But he says, whoever believes in him will what? Not be ashamed? On him shall not be ashamed. Yeah, and so they're saying what they do then is use that as a tool. If, you're, if you truly believe in him, you won't be ashamed to come down here and walk the aisle. But if, you, if, you, if, you won't, if you're not willing to do that, what are they alleging? You're really not saved. You really don't believe. That is, that is despicable. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he makes two statements, and then he's still saying, he, he starts with, with the heart, man believes under righteousness. It's still about believing. And the acknowledging is uh, acknowledging the Lord is what comes to a believer after well after they're a believer. I said I'm not going to teach that, but I'm kind of in the middle of it a little bit now anyway. Uh, believe in Jesus and kind of straighten it out in their own mind. But then they stay with this this person that's given it wrong. Can they be saved with and and still have some kind of um, self righteous? If attitude? you believe a false gospel you cannot be saved. Okay. Period. So there's a lot of 
There's a lot of people that have got a false gospel out there. And that's one of the biggest churches in Houston. Well, and you know, that's the ones that you find. I know. Uh, you know what the gospel is to so many people today. Uh, you need to invite Christ into your heart. You, it's, it's really what they're saying is if you, salvation to them is co-oping with, with Jesus Christ to make, give you a better life. It doesn't have anything to do with throwing yourself, your faith on Him, believing in His work on the cross to save you from the pit of hell. That's not what they think it is. It's, you know, invite Him into your heart. What do you have to do to invite? You can't invite Him. And let me, let me say this, and then I'll take another statement if I want to, but I want to get this out. Salvation can be a gift or it can be payment for work done, but it cannot be both. Since the Bible calls it a gift, works cannot be associated associated with it in any way whatsoever. If it's a gift, then it's a gift. It cannot be of works. It, now, God could have made it to where salvation is of works. I mean, He could have said, you have to work for it. There wouldn't be any grace there, and I don't know why He would do it that way, but He could have. So it can be of a gift and be of grace, or it can be of works and be compensation, but it's impossible for them to be to, for it to be both. It has to be one or the other. I think I make that point down here. Um, did, did you want to say something, Rachel? What is the gospel she believes, though? Is it, is it a true gospel or a false gospel? Is it, if it's a gospel that adds works to it, it is a false gospel. I don't care how sincere she is, how much she believes it, or how good she is, or anything else, or if she changes, it changes her life, whatever. If she, if she believed in a false gospel, the object of her faith is not Jesus Christ, and she is not saved, period. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, Barbara. But let me tell you something. This is, this is funny, but it's still... No, it's good. Let me tell you. This is very important. She said... Barbara raised her hand. She said, I'm safe. I said, okay, now let me ask you all this. I want you to contemplate this. How do you know you're safe? Barbara says she's safe. How does she know that she's safe? Listen to this very carefully. If it is what the Bible says, if when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are eternally saved at that point by God's grace because it's a gift. If that's true, you can know that you're saved because you know that there was a point in time that was made clear to you. You accepted it. The Bible says if you, if you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. Right? If you have to add any kind of work to it, you cannot know for sure. Because you... Pardon? Yeah, I know, but what she was asking me when, you know, when he said that, or somebody was asking me, did that negate the, the faith or you know, the gospel? And what I said is, is if he gave a clear presentation and she accepted it, bam, she's born again, she has eternal life, she has God's righteousness, all that has taken place. Now, if he said you have to fly around the room and, and, and sprinkle fairy dust on people, it doesn't matter what he adds after that, if she believed at that point, she's eternally saved. But if he did not make it clear, 
if he incorporated works into the gospel to begin with and she bought it hook, line, and sinker, she still is not saved because she did not hear the correct gospel. She heard a false gospel. Does that clarify it? Yeah, there's another, there's another Jesus. There's another gospel. Another gospel, you can count on it, always includes works. Oh, well, uh, listen, <laughs> even, even, after, even after one is saved, because there are very few churches that's, that teach the mystery doctrines of the church age and the spiritual dynamics that we are to function by. They don't teach them. These people don't even know how to be, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Since they don't need, know that, about once every month or two, they know that their sins have been accumulating and they start feeling guilty. And so they come down front and they rededicate their life to Jesus. You know why they do that? Because they don't know rebound. They don't know that all you have to do is acknowledge your sins to, to, to God and at that point, boom, you are cleansed. They don't know that and they start feeling guilty. And so they trot down the aisle every once in a while just to kind of clear the decks. You know... Why do you think I never have anybody come and rededicate their life? Because the people here know how to get rid of the sin problem post-salvation sin. They know when they acknowledge it to God, boom, it's gone. They don't have to carry real guilt. They don't, nobody better come down here and ask me, uh, I want to rededicate my life. I say, well, I'll see you afterwards. We need to talk. But you see it all the time in these other churches. I know what I'm talking about. When I was young, I was at one of those churches, and I wore the carpet out. I even did it sometimes, a few times, just to shut down just as I am. I couldn't take another verse. <laughs> well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's all about feelings. Yes? Uh, Helen studied a book by a Christian that's an ex-Mormon, and... Uh, they believe in Jesus, but it's not our Jesus. Yeah, right. Listen to this. There is another faith. There's another gospel. And there is another spirit. And there's another Jesus. They all, that's the counterfeit. This is what Satan is a master at deception. Aren't you glad that you know the word? Aren't you glad that it's not a bunch of fluff and you have to keep coming and fret and worry about this, whether you're even saved or uh, if, you're, if your sins mount up, what to do with it and all the rest of it. We can know for sure that we have eternal life because works are not involved. And it all happens the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. That's the word in 2 Corinthians 5.19. That's what he's saying. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. What? not counting their trespasses against them. That is the gospel. You, you, you don't have your trespasses held against you. Christ took care of that. And all it takes is to receive that gift through believing it. And that's, I haven't even got to the point, oh man, I have, woo, I wish I could have got on with what I have. Some, but anyhow, we're going to get into easy believism. I mean, you tell somebody it's faith alone in Christ alone. Oh, that's easy believism. That's just a mental ascent of the mind. 
You know what you should do when someone says that's just a mental sin of the mind? What should you do? Ask them, what in the world is a mental ascent of the mind? And you know what they're going to say? Uh, a deer in the headlights. They heard someone else said it and it seemed to work. Well, I don't know. We're out of time. Aren't you glad that it's a gift that can be obtained by simply believing God at His Word and we can know that we have it? We don't have to fret about, have I, have I done enough works? If I thought I could lose my salvation, I could not sleep at night. What a great thing that God has given to us, and it all comes through His Word. And even for us to be able to understand that Word comes from Him. Everything that we have, everything we are, everything we hope to have, everything is about God's grace. You miss that, and you miss the whole boat. Let's close. Father, we are so thankful that you are our magnificent God that is full of grace and mercy. And that you did the unthinkable when you stepped out of heaven and became man on our heart, on our behalf. We need to be able to hold the line. For we live in a world that is in darkness and the great majority of people have bought the lie. And they are very entrenched in it. We pray that you will help us to inculcate these principles, learn these scriptures, so that we can ask the questions and direct them in the Bible to the right answers. We thank you so much that it is by grace alone. And pray that we will, with a very clear clarion call, tell everyone that we come in contact with that we are able to do so how great our gracious God is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.